our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Welcome to The Late Show. I'm your host, Stephen Colbert. Now, listen, I just want to say something to everybody at home. If you're standing, you better sit down. And if you're sitting down, get on the floor and weep. Because there is a massive controversy rocking D.C. This week, the Washington Post asked a question that generations of historians will debate. The Bidens ordered the same dish at a restaurant. Who does that? I'll tell you who. I'll tell you who, a renegade president who's up to his bib in the biggest national food scandal since Nixon said this. I am not a cook. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. That's rare. That's rare for Roland. Which is why tonight we're calling the Biden's redundant entree scandal All the President's Menu. <laughs> now, admittedly, it's a bit of a slow news day. And I'm not the only one who is so starved for a story that it's making me hangry. The media landscape is bristling with headlines like Biden and First Lady's order sparks strong reactions, Biden's restaurant order sparks furious debate, and the Bidens went to dinner and ordered the same dish, dividing the Internet. Yes. This is, this, this is so... This is far cry from the last president and his First Lady. They never got the same dish. He would order a burnt steak with ketchup, and she always had a small side of blood diamonds. <laughs> but one thing, that's not a mock-up, one thing, one thing this firestorm proves after four years of the last guy putting us through a daily ringer and roller coaster of neo-fascist grift, we finally get to be outraged by low-stakes scandals. So break out. So break out. So break out your tan suit, eat your pizza with a fork and knife, and puke on the Prime Minister of Japan, because <laughs> I think everything's going to be okay. So let, let, me, let me walk you through exactly what we know, what went down with the Bidens. This is every detail. A few weeks back, Joe and Jill snuck out for a date to a D.C. area restaurant, okay? That's right. Not only is today's big story about two old people eating, <laughs> it happened a while ago. And here are every single one of the details. The first couple ordered a chicory salad, grilled bread and butter, and two bowls of rigatoni. How dare they order the same entree? This is America, damn it. (laughs) The rule is you and your spouse go in with a plan. You order different entrees so you can try two things. But then the other person seems to like your thing more than the thing that they said that they wanted, so they keep taking bites until you say, you know what, why don't you just finish it? And they say, no, 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 it's yours. I'll eat my chicken Caesar. And you say, this is the Cheesecake Factory all over again. (laughs) Then you forget your leftovers on the table and drive home in silence the way God intended. (laughs) But... Sorry, there are rules. There. There are rules. 
Well, these days, it isn't all pasta for the press. Yesterday, Biden gave a speech to the House Democrats where he touted his administration's reduction of the deficit. Just one problem, he was a bit off on the number. Working with all of you, we cut the deficit by $1.7 billion in two years, the largest deficit reduction in American history. And when I introduced my... It's pretty rare. It's pretty rare for hecklers to tell you you're actually doing better than you thought. <laughs> you suck! Successfully rebooted the economy. Beautiful job, Joe. Biden also highlighted a huge win from yesterday when Eli Lilly announced it would finally lower the cost of insulin. Now, so many people get insulin. But guess what? Instead of four to five hundred bucks a month, they're going to pay thirty-five dollars a month. That's an over 90% discount. That's like... That's like if Dollar Tree changed their name to it, it's free. (laughs) Of course. Of course. Biden's chief rival is likely to be the former president, but he's no sure thing these days, in part because, according to insiders, the former president is facing a soft ban at Fox. They're banning the ex-president? That's like Discovery Channel banning sharks. (laughs) No one wants to watch Salty Water Week. (laughs) Apparently, the former president has fallen out of favor with News Corp chairman and plum you should have eaten five days ago. (laughs) Rupert Murdoch. According to filings in the Dominion lawsuit, Murdoch has been trying to keep the ex-pres off Fox for a long time now. After January 6th, Murdoch instructed an aide to make the former president a non-person. He wants to make the former president persona non grata, as opposed to now, when he's persona al gratin. (laughs) Instead, au gratin. Instead, Fox News is trying to promote other candidates, especially Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, seen here standing... (laughs) Seen here standing in the middle of I'm with Stupid Boulevard. (laughs) But... You see? It's worth waiting for the joke. It's worth waiting for the joke. All I'm saying is... It's worth it. (laughs) Things are not going according to Uncle Rupee's plan. Earlier this week, Fox sent the most information-resistant of the Fox and Friends down to a diner in DeSantis' home state of Florida, actually in his old congressional district, to show just how popular DeSantis is. 2024, who's pumped up for the election? All right. Rapid fire. Who's your man? Who's your woman? My man, Donald Trump. Donald Trump. Who's your man? Trump. Or woman? Trump. Trump. A lot of Trump fans. (laughs) Ha ha. Not the answer I was looking for. Have you guys not heard there's a soft ban? Okay. Please, someone say anyone else's name or Rupert's going to take my thumbs. You, sir. Anything. (laughs) Then... He saw one ray of hope in the room, a woman wearing a DeSantis T-shirt. I see, I see uh, Governor DeSantis. What about President DeSantis? I like it. I like uh, it. Who's your pick? Oh, gosh, I don't know. Trump or DeSantis. I'm either or. Either or. Either or you're wearing a Ron DeSantis T-shirt. That's like Mr. Mets saying, go Mets or Yankees. I'm not really into baseball. 
This is just an unrelated medical condition. It's pretty... It's a weird priority, but uh, all across the country, Republicans are now laser-focused on one issue, banning drag. And the latest hateful dummy... The latest hateful dummy to jump on the turd wagon is Texas state representative and guy who broke up with his last girlfriend because she didn't like impractical jokers. <laughs> Nate Schatzline. Schatzline has authored a bill that would seek to limit drag by designating any establishment as a sexually oriented business if it allows on-premises consumption of alcoholic beverages and performances by a person wearing any clothing or makeup not stereotypical to their born sex. If serving alcohol and having men in gowns makes you a sexually oriented business, I've got bad news about church. (laughs) So... Not me. It's him saying that. That's not me. I'm not saying that. He's saying that. Dummy. So, Schatzline wants to stop people from publicly wearing anything that does not conform to traditional definitions of gender, which is why people had some confusion when this video emerged of him in high school running around. Party started. Let's get this party started. Sexy lady. Okay, that's him in front in the dress, and that's drag. (laughs) And now he's trying to ban it for everyone else? This is the most hypocritical move since Nancy Reagan's famous anti-drug campaign. Just say no, because that's my bag of coke. Back off or I'll cut a bitch. (laughs) We got a great show for you. Coming up, Steven Spielberg. I'm Rachel Martin. After hosting Morning Edition for years, I know that the news can wear you down. So we made a new podcast called Wild Card, where a special deck of cards and a whole bunch of fascinating guests help us sort out what makes life meaningful. It's part game show, part existential deep dive, and it is seriously fun. Join me on Wild Card wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. Ladies and gentlemen, last week I had the honor to sit down with a man who has been delighting moviegoers for the last 50 years, Steven Spielberg, the legendary director who rarely does television and has never done late night, has been responsible for some of our greatest cultural touchstones. Jaws, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Raiders of the Lost Ark, E.T., Jurassic Park, Schindler's List, Saving Private Ryan, Munich, Lincoln, last year's West Side Story, and his latest... The Fablemans is nominated for seven Academy Awards, including Best Director and Best Picture. It's a semi-autobiographical telling of Steven Spielberg's own youth. Through Sammy Fableman, we learn about how this iconic director fell in love with making movies and the secret he kept that led to the shattering of his family. Mr. Spielberg was kind enough to invite me into his Amblin offices for an extensive conversation about his life and his films. Jim? Steven Spielberg, thank you for having us here at Amblin and sitting down to talk about the Fablemans in your career. Yeah, welcome, welcome, welcome here. There's a sort of a mythical story that you actually got into Universal for the first time as part of a tour and just stayed. I did. How, how did you do that? I, I hid in the bathroom during a bathroom break. It was a big bus called the Grey Line Tours. They didn't have trams in those days. 
and you got on a big bus and they took you around the lot and showed you the back lot and Western Street and all the sound stages from outside. But I kept wanting to get inside the sound stages. They weren't letting us off the bus, but they gave us one bathroom break. So I, I, I stayed in the stall until I heard all the doors closing. And I just gave it another 10 minutes, and I, 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 then I was sort of loose on the lot. Is it true that you took an empty office and just claimed it as your own and put your name on the door? Yeah, I used... In those, there was a camera store down on Ventura Boulevard and Laurel Canyon that uh, sold these little title letters, these little stick-on letters, sticky on one side, and I went and bought a set of those, and I put my name in that little directory that you open up the little door with glass door, yes. I put my name on that and the room number. And, uh, and that was where I hung my hat for during a summer. The and second but, summer I had, I, I had done that. But nobody knew that you were doing this. Yeah, yeah, there were people who knew I was doing it, but nobody that get me kicked off the lot. Sid Scheinberg, then the VP of the studio, yeah. was impressed with your short film, Amblin, and what year, it's 1968? 68. 68, okay. Yeah. And he offers you a seven-year directing contract. Right. And as part of that, the very first person you ever directed, I understand, who had a SAG union card was Joan Crawford. That's right. Okay. You're how old at this point? 22, I think. How did you, as a 22-year-old, give notes and direct an icon like Joan Crawford? Where did you find the, what's the Yiddish word, huevos rancheros? To do that, uh, 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 chutzpah is another word. Okay, and uh, although I think it was more Sid Sheinberg's chutzpah to hire me in the first place. Um, What's that first moment like when you walk on the set and there's well, Joan Crawford? Well, I, I had met Joan before at the at the house she was renting uh, somewhere in Hollywood. I had met her. She wanted to meet me, and I went up there with John Badham, the associate producer. And when we were supposed to go out to dinner to Musso and Frank's, mm -hmm. we walked into the front door, and Joan took one look at me and said. We can't go out to dinner now. People will think you're my son. That was the first thing she said to me. First words out of Joan Crawford's mouth, people will think you're my son. Were you shaving yet? Uh, it, well, it, it, no. <laughs> <laughs> I, but I was using Clearasil. <laughs> so you directed a bunch of TV. Yes. Uh, Marcus Welby, MD, Columbo, The mm -hmm. Name of the Game. Mm -hmm. Do you have any advice for the, the young guy who was shooting these TV things? Is there anything you see in that work and you go, oh, I wish I could go back and tell him this? I, I, I think, I think uh, there's always things that I... This is why I don't look at a lot, a lot of my movies after I've made them. I don't sit down and... I'm not Gloria Swanson in Sunset Boulevard having screenings of her own silent movies for herself, you know? So I don't look back that often. But uh, every once in a while, I'll see a movie with my kids because I, 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 I want to accompany my kids when they see E.T. for the first time. Mm -hmm. I, I don't want them to see E.T. without Dad sitting there, mm -hmm. especially the scary parts at the beginning. And, um, and sometimes I see things that I had intended to do that I didn't do, and sometimes I see things that would have been a better idea than what I'm now seeing all those years later. But for the most part, E.T.'s a pretty perfect movie. So I have. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. Pretty good. Pretty good. Pretty good movie. Kind of works. Where do you find the courage? <laughs> well, kind of works. To call E.T. pretty good. It's one of, one, of the, one of the few movies I've made that I can actually look back and look at again and again. There's only a handful of movies I can watch except more than once, but not, not a lot. I've made like 34 films, and I'm not going to name which ones they are beyond E.T. There's about five or six films that I can watch again, but I don't usually do that. Before The Fablemans, you've said that Close Encounters of the Third Kind was the most personal film that you had made. Why? Well, it, it was the first film I'd ever made about a family breaking up. 
I never meet a picture of a, of a, of a, of a family coming into uh, colliding mm -hmm. with their values or with their, with their obsessions. And, uh, and it, it was, so a lot of the breakup, which I wrote the script, so I think I, it was very evocative of my own life and the trauma that we all suffered. My parents announced to all of us that they were, they were separating, and then later they would be divorcing. The, for the characters, for the kids, certainly in Close Encounters, it's inexplicable. Their father's behavior is madness. Yeah. Did that, was that what that felt like to you at the time? I, I think when you're young, I was not that young when my parents announced they were 17, just about ready to go off to college. But I think it is madness. I think when you are so confident that, you know, it, it, it may snow in the desert in Arizona, and that wouldn't surprise you someday, mm -hmm. but your parents will never leave you. You will never be unaccompanied. And when I saw that happening, when my sister saw that all of a sudden what we considered to be normal in, with a mom and a dad, we were, all, all, we were suddenly going to have a mom living there and a father living there, and we were going to separate and divide up. And that, 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 informed, that, that has informed many of my stories. When we come back, I asked Steven Spielberg why now is the right time for him to make The Fablemans. Stick around. An official message from Medicare. A new law is helping me save more money on prescription drug costs. Maybe you can save too. With Medicare's Extra Help program, my premium is zero and my out-of-pocket costs are low. Who should apply? Single people making less than $23,000 a year or married couples who make less than $31,000 a year. Even if you don't think you qualify, it pays to find out. Go to ssa.gov slash extra help. Paid for by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Turn to my conversation with Steven Spielberg. Had you been thinking about telling the story of the Fablemans for a long time? Yeah, for years. Yeah. What kept you from telling it before this, or why was this the right moment? You, you know, I, I, I think that I just had, for, for one thing, I had a lot of passions and things I, stories I was telling and things I had on my, on my kind of wish list. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't even call it a bucket list. It was just, I really want to make this kind of movie. I want to make get into that genre. I want to do a movie about, you know, I want to do a movie about uh, AI. I mean, I had all these other things. But, and I, and I, I realized I kept putting segments of the Fableman story into all of these other films. It's a daring thing to look at your own life, I think, um, if you can do it honestly. Yeah. Because there are big things that you maybe yeah. didn't want to remember about your yes, own life. right. Is there any point where you said, this might be a mistake? Yes. I thought... By making, by, by telling a story about how I discovered my mom was having an affair of the heart mm -hmm. with her and my father's best friend and my father's business partner was something that never had to be publicly, you know, expressed. And, and I, had a lot, I had a lot of second thoughts about that. But to his credit, Tony Kushner continued to say, that is the MacGuffin of this movie. That is the... That is the center ring in the circus of your life. That is the center ring. And that's where you're going to be flying through the air on a trapeze, and there's not going to be a net. And I think you can afford, with all your success, to possibly slip and fall to your death. And don't worry about that, because you've earned the right to tell the story. It's a brilliant movie. 
I think it's very beautiful. Um, that might be the greatest moment in it, though, is the moment of discovery, where Sam, without words, in the purest filmic way, mm-hmm. discovers something through the lens of his camera. That's right. Do you have a conscious sense that you can see more through the lens than you see in your daily life? Yes. Because I obviously observed my mom's behavior, how she lit up when she was around, mm-hmm. you know, Bernie. Mm-hmm. And I never thought there was anything untoward about that. I never was suspicious about that. It just my mom had a best friend who happened to be my dad's business partner. But somehow when I put a aspect ratio around that and looked through my little Bolex 8mm camera and took it home and started cutting my little all the little cappy trip f- film together, the film told me the truth where my eyes couldn't perceive it. And so it was something I couldn't see as a human interacting with my mom and dad and Bertie walking you know, you know, you know, on, on these camping trips, but somehow on that little teeny ground glass screen of the movie editor I saw something that I never saw with my own eyes. What was it like to step onto the set for the first day with Paul Dano and Michelle Williams as your mom and dad? Well, I thought it was going to be just routine. because Done it a million times. Yeah, done it a million times. I know what a first day of shooting is like. I know what it's like to get the cast assembled and to figure out the blocking of the first thing you're about to shoot with the cast and the camera and all that. And it, it was it was very routine, but I had never seen them together. I'd only done I had only seen Michelle in her costume, with Mark Bridges who designed the costumes, mm-hmm. or with uh, uh, and Paul Dano. I saw them always separate. But on the first day of shooting, uh, Mark Bridges came over to me and said, uh, "I've got Paul. I've got Paul and Michelle here, uh, in in their hair, makeup, and costumes." And I was talking to I think Christy. And so I turned around, and I turned around, and there was my father and my mother, and I just burst into tears. I mean, just like that. I, I didn't even think about it. It just happened. And uh, uh, Michelle ran to me, hugged me. Paul came around the back of me. He's really tall. Hugged me around the shoulders and just, just held me. And, I, and I, had, I had, by the way, I had given them speeches long before the first day of shooting. I got all my tears out right in the script with Tony Kushner. When Tony and I co-wrote this thing, I got all my emotion out. I'm a professional, don't worry about me. You don't have to take care of me. My job is to take care of you and guide you to giving some great performances. Yeah. And it uh, wasn't to be. <laughs> Let's talk about the monkey. Yeah. How long did your family have the monkey? It's my, mo- my family didn't have the monkey. My mom had the monkey. She went to a pet store. <laughs> That's, you're parsing. Oh, uh, you're splitting hairs, oh, my Steven mom, Spielberg. Was, I, if there's a monkey in the house, the whole family has the well, monkey. Well, we, we had to live with the monkey. You know, I, I didn't put this in the Fablemans, but the monkey would basically throw its feces sure. at us through the bars of his, or the, the mesh of his cage. I mean, this yeah. was an ornery little monkey. Young Sam, and I assume mm-hmm. young Steven Spielberg, 
is bullied and feels alienated by his Jewishness. And you've said it took years for you to embrace your, your heritage and not doing so fully until you were actually making Schindler's List. Um, with the profits of the film, you created the Shoah Foundation. And I'm curious, as someone who's examined his, his own Jewishness and in the, in the place of Jews not only in the United States mm-hmm. but, but around the world, do you find it surprising the rise of public anti-Semitism not only in the United States, but in authoritarian countries all around the world now? I, I find it very, very surprising because anti-Semitism has always been there. It's, it's either been just around the corner and slightly out of sight, but always lurking, or it has been much more overt, like in Germany in the 30s. Um, but not since Germany in the 30s have I witnessed anti-Semitism no longer lurking, but standing proud with hands on hips like Hitler and Mussolini, uh, uh, kind of daring us to defy it. I've never experienced this in my entire life, especially in this country. It's disturbing. It's heartbreaking. Do you have any theories as to why it's raising its ugly head? Somehow the marginalizing of people that aren't part of some kind of a majority race uh, is, is something that has been creeping up on us for years and years and years. And somehow, 2014, 2015, 2016, hate became a kind of membership to a club that has gotten more members than I ever thought was possible in America. And hate and anti-Semitism go hand in hand. You can't separate one from the other. As one of the greatest communicators in the world, what gives you hope that the gambit that is divisiveness and hate and anger as a political policy, that it will not succeed? What, what is the countervailing message to that that you would want to say? I, I just think without painting a naive portrait of myself sitting here talking to you, and to quote Anne Frank, I think she's right when she said, in most people there's good, that she mm-hmm. saw good in most people. And I think essentially at our core there is goodness and there is empathy. When we come back, Steven Spielberg and I are joined by legendary composer, the great John Williams. Stick around. Enjoying this episode of The Late Show Pod Show? Then head to cohst.app slash late show or visit the link in the description to fill out our quick two-minute survey all about getting to know you. Exciting enough to talk to Steven Spielberg, we were joined by a very special guest. John Williams has been Steven Spielberg's closest collaborator. 
They've worked on nearly every project together, from 1974's Sugarland Express to The Fablemans, which marks John Williams' 53rd Oscar nomination. He's been responsible for some of the most iconic scores in film history. So I understand that in 2022 marked your 50th anniversary of, of working together. You guys met in 1972. The first film that you did was Sugarland Express in 1974 with Steven. Correct. Um, is it true that you're, you guys met on basically a, a first date that somebody else set up? Was it a blind date, your first Somebody date? Somebody set up a meeting, a lunch meeting for us in, in some fancy restaurant in Beverly Hills. Mm-hmm. And uh, the head waiter came and he said, I was bringing to Mr. Spielberg. And I saw this, uh, a teenager, I thought, you've got to forgive me, Stephen, tell this story. I'm not even here. Tell the story. You, oh, so I thought, <laughs> I, I, I thought maybe that's Mr. Spielberg's son. Where's Spielberg? <laughs> you know? And I, of course, I sat down with him and within... A minute or two, I realized this is somebody very, very special with a keen and bristling, dazzling intellect who remembered everything I'd ever written that I'd already forgotten. I had a huge collection of soundtracks. And when I heard John's score for The Reavers, I said to myself, if I ever get a chance to direct movies, I want this guy to score all of them. (laughs) This is back in 1972. I have a very simple question. What's your job? And I, I don't mean that facetiously. What's your job? No, no, it's a wonderful question. It's very, very simple. I, I, I don't know if I can give you a simple answer. But my job in film, I think the first answer that I can give you is, that, is, to, is to inform and uh, improve in, in the process of storytelling through music, if I can. Mm-hmm. Uh, describe the characters, describe the atmosphere and the ambiance of what the, what the story requires and so uh, my job is to be a collaborator with the director in achieving all these things, the atmospherics, the emotional content, and so on. Stephen, you've said, I depend on John more than I depend on anybody to rewrite my mov- movies musically and put them a rung higher than I could ever reach. What do you think it is about John that allows him to understand your intention and to amplify that in a way that you can't reach yourself? Well, John puts a lot of stock in the first impression of watching the story on spool when he sees the film for the first time. And he puts a lot of stock in that. And um, and I think there is some kind of a... Something happens which is beyond, certainly way beyond my ability to, to, to sort of do an autopsy on the genius of John Williams. I don't know how to do that. I just know that something happens... The film connects with Johnny. Johnny has ideas as he's watching the film. He let the story unspooling roll over him, make him feel something. And he is somehow able to take those feelings, those emotions, and he's able to find the musical equivalent of, of emotion, of energy, of, of creating a musical narrative, of binding all the disparate parts of a movie story into a very smooth narrative musically. And he just has a way of doing this, unlike anyone I've ever seen perform his job. We just agree about aesthetic choices and matters of taste. 
We've never had an argument. No, never. It, it really? Might, it, no. no. We I mean, never have. Be, it, 29 films that's we've done together. That's really surprising. Maybe. Though. No. It's, it's, Is it because you both acknowledge each other's lanes? And, and that you're both, you know, a master speaking to a master. Well, I don't think it's that as much as it's we're in the same lane, and uh, without playing bumper cars, we just have a way of, you know, I've I've never not liked something that John has written for one of my movies. I've never said, oh, I don't I don't I don't feel that's right for my movie, or I don't think we should use that piece of music at this point. I, I everything Johnny has written has fit like a glove. And so there's never been bumps of my, about my disagreeing with something that he's composed, ever. We didn't have enough time in tonight's show for my full conversation with John Williams, but tune in next week. We'll have more with Steven and John on their famous collaborations. And when we return, I asked Steven Spielberg about UFOs. <laughs> Hey everyone, it's David Duchovny. Do you ever feel like a failure? Trust me, I get it. Hell, I've spent my whole life almost feeling like a failure. It's appropriate though, because on Fail Better, my new podcast with Lemonada Media, exploring the world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives is the whole point. Each week I'll chat with artists, athletes, actors, and experts about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, I hope we can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out on May 7th, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back, everybody. And now... The thrilling conclusion of my conversation with a man I now feel comfortable calling Mr. Spielberg. <laughs> Let's talk about UFOs for a minute. What do you make of what's going on right now? Oh, it's exciting. <laughs> There's something out there. So you're a believer? I don't know if I'm a believer in the sense that I'm kind of the person that would think, I, I got to see something like that to believe it. I'll, mm -hmm. I, I can make up stuff. Sure. And make movies about things that I've never seen or experienced, and that's fine. But in terms of really believing something, I think I'd have to have a, my own close encounter. Mm -hmm. um, so I have, I've never seen a UFO. I wish I wish I did. Nothing that's unexplained. I've never seen anything that I couldn't explain. Mm -hmm. But I believe certain people who have seen things that they can't explain that is unexplainable. Um, I think what has been coming out recently is fascinating. Just absolutely fascinating. Mm -hmm. And I think the, the secrecy that is shrouding all of these sightings mm -hmm. and the lack of transparency until Freedom of Information Act compels certain materials to be released publicly, I think that there is something going on that simply needs extraordinary um, you know, due diligence. I mean, I, just, I, I would like to hear more about it. I don't know what they are. Uh, my imagination and my love for... You know, I, I don't believe we're alone in the universe. I think it's mathematically impossible that we are the only, you know, you know, intelligent species in, in, the, in the cosmos. I think that's totally impossible. At the same time, it almost seems impossible that anybody would visit us from 400 million light years from here, mm -hmm. except in the movies, unless it figures out some way of, you know, sort of 
you know, basically uh, jumping the shark, so to speak, mm -hmm. and getting here through wormholes or, or, or uh, so I, I'm not a astrophysicist. I really can't speak the language of the people that do it so well out at JPL. Mm -hmm. But I just know as a person that makes movies and uses his imagination and also as a person that is, that is insatiably curious about UFOs or UAPs, yes. that, that there's something, something going on that we're really not being made, made, that's not being disclosed to us. Well, senators who have been briefed on this, and I don't mean just these latest balloon-ish incidents, senators who have been briefed on this have said there are things the American people deserve to know, and the quote I love is, and they're ready to learn. And that yeah. says to me that there's something sort of um, paradigm shattering yeah. about this news that we're not being told. You know, the most optimistic thing I feel about these things that we're seeing in the skies yeah. or the Army and Navy and Air Force are yeah. recording on their, on, their, on their gun cameras is that what if they're not from an advanced civilization 300 million light years from here, but what if it's us 500,000 years into the future that is coming back to document the second half of the 20th century and into the first 20th century because they're anthropologists and they know something that we don't quite know yet that has occurred and they're trying to track uh, uh, um, the last 100 years of our, of our history. Well, the hopeful part about that to me is that we survive. Yes, that we survive or a certain percentage of us survive that allows these other generations to flourish. Okay, if there are aliens, is your bet on E.T. or War of the Worlds? E.T. Your bet is on E.T. Oh, yeah, yeah. War of the Worlds was just sort of a reflection of 9-11. It was my way of making a story about the impact that 9-11 had on all of us. I believe that if any extraterrestrial civilization has, has, has journeyed all the way here, it's, it's because of curiosity and science, and it's not about aggression. Because if they can get here, they don't need our resources. They must have enormous resources already. Y yeah, exactly. And the fact they've been this patient with us and haven't turned the earth into a burned-out cinder is, is, is extraordinary. That they've had that. If there is, is anything happening, you have to applaud them for their patience. You're Steven Spielberg, and obviously people pitch you movie ideas all mm -hmm. the time. Yes. And uh, I have a great idea, and you know, use it, don't use it but I just want you to hear me out, okay? E.T. 2, it's time. Is that the title, E.T. 2, it's time? Doesn't matter what the title is. <laughs> doesn't matter what the title is. Just E.T. 2, Electric Boogaloo, it doesn't matter. We make E.T. 2 and you're gonna go, well, well what's it about? It's about a billion dollar opening weekend, Steve, <laughs> okay? You'll admit that, that it would be the highest grossing opening weekend of all time, E.T. 2. Or Nobody will show up because they love ET one too much. You're crazy. Mm -mm. <laughs> You're crazy. Okay, I got some titles. ET sure. again. Too extra, too terrestrial. <laughs> Look who's ETing now. ETV Predator. <laughs> Would you want to see the Predator fight ET? That, that's like that, that's like that's like Yoda in the last Star Wars movie where he fought so yes, wonderfully. Exactly. We got a CGI ET. We give him a lightsaber. It's a crossover. I don't know. I don't think know. about it. I don't don't know, answer me now. I don't know, Stephen. The weaponizing of ET. I don't think. <laughs> I don't think that's such a really? good idea. It's a different world. 
1982, obviously, E.T.'s not going to have a lightsaber. He doesn't have any armor. He can deflect things with his mind. He has no clothes. If it wasn't for Gertie and Elliot, he wouldn't even That's have true. that robe. That's true. How did you get away? How did you get away with I've often, a full frontal nudity on an alien? I've this often is wondered. Shocking. I've often wondered when people re report seeing the Greys, they yes. report being abducted by extraterrestrials yeah. and stuff, why they're not wearing clothes. Why are they all naked? Why, why or are maybe they all it's just naked? a very tight skin suit. Maybe it's a cat it is. suit. Maybe it has a th maybe it's a th whole thermostatic system. Maybe they're not even gray. Maybe it zips off. <laughs> maybe, zip, maybe, maybe, maybe zips it comes up. off. And All right. And just one more time on the ET2. Okay. This time we do it right. Forget Reese's Pieces. The M&M people are going to become crawling to you this time. Yeah, but you know something? They had their shot. I'm wow. sticking with Reese's. Wow. Loyalty. You like to work with the same people over and over again. I'm very loyal to so people I'm, who are loyal to me. I'm smelling that this is, a, was loyal. this is not a hard no is what I'm hearing, that you've thought about this. Well, I certainly thought about a, 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 a sort of a, a, an endless supply of Reese's Pieces. Did you ever think about a sequel to E.T.? No, never. So I'm just going <laughs> to leave this with you. I can't believe I'm, I'm looking at that I'm right just going to look with you. I just, why don't you just, just whatever, like... Look through it. Don't look through it. Don't look at it now. Don't look at it now. Oh, I don't want... Say, it says, et a tu brute. It's... Mm -hmm. a tu brute. Okay. I got one sentence for you, and that is, uh -huh. E.T. make bank. <laughs> <laughs> That's my Christmas card. I'm, I'm going to open this when I'm, when I'm in the office, and I'm going to yes. write you a letter about it. Um, oh, my God. There's actually a script here. What are you thinking? I'm not going to pitch Steven Spielberg and E.T. No, I'm taking this to J.J. I'm giving it to Universal. I'm giving it to J.J. Abrams. Thanks again to Steven Spielberg, John Williams, and everyone at Amblin. You can watch The Fablemans in theaters and at home now. Thank you for listening to The Late Show Pod Show with Stephen Colbert. Just one more thing. If you want to see more of me, come to The Late Show YouTube channel for more clips and exclusives. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.